Alrighty, turning, if you're using your Pew Bibles, it's page 614, or Psalm 130, roughly the, the middle of your Bibles. Psalm 130, Pew Bibles, page 614. This is the Latin term for this is de profundus, out of the depths. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But... With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, we would say now, the people of God, the church, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful or multiplied redemption, redemption over and over again. And he will redeem Israel, all of his people, from all of his iniquities. That's why we say, O oh Lord, taste the day. And then in your pew Bibles, page 737 or Isaiah 61 and verses 1 to 3, Jesus begins his public ministry in Nazareth, the hometown boy. And he's a rabbi. He's been, been set apart now, and uh, he is a teacher. And what is the first text that he opens up from the Old Testament? And this is the one he opens up and says, This day it is fulfilled in your hearing. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3, page 737. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Amen. And then Jesus said, This day the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Day of vengeance, he did not read at that point. That would be his return but all of these other things marking his first coming. And then page 962. <clears throat> we'll be in this page for a long time as we come to the, the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, page 962, uh, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. He taught his disciples, saying, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Grass withers, flowers fade away. The word of our God stands forever, to which you say together, Hallelujah, and thanks be to God. I, uh, I want to thank you for your, your prayers for Margaret and me. Uh, this, we didn't really get much of a vacation this summer. Uh, there were so many things to do. Uh, a couple weeks of vacation, but that involved a lot of traveling. And then, a, and then a working vacation, emphasis on the working. And I confess that we were, we were pretty exhausted um, between Margaret and, and grandchildren to watch and me with administrative work. When you're, when you're uh, a connected church, as we are, connected with a, a Presbyterian, a denomination, and Reformation Metro New York, there's a lot of administrative work. You keep up with your, your donors as well as the congregation members, and you visit the people that are, are visiting you, and uh, there's all kinds of reports to fill out. And I must confess, and this is what this is, it was getting to the point, brothers and sisters, by, by the end of, of um, September, I, I had written something out. I repented of it later, but I, I wrote out, I wrote out, life is, an, is a relentless and endless series of things to do. And then I added, in Christ, finally I ripped it up because I realized that was, that was pretty cynical. And, uh, but that's about what it was like before Margaret and I went on our break beginning Monday and got out of the traffic <laughs> to, uh, to get out of New York City area. But it was a time, and I'll, I'll use the, the word for the day for us here, it was a time for Margaret and me to savor things. Uh, I don't know, it was just this time or the year or whatever. I've never, I've never been as fascinated, nor as Margaret, with the cloud formations that we saw. We were, we were in Narragansett Pier in Rhode Island, and we traveled up the coast, came to Rockport, and the clouds were absolutely majestic, and we, and we savored those clouds. We, we relished them. We delighted. And in fact, we said, Lord, if you're going to come back, what a wonderful way to come on these kinds of clouds that we see in the morning and the afternoon and, and the evening at sunset. And uh, we, we savored the foliage up in New England, especially as you get inland. There's, there's nothing, like a, nothing like New England foliage. Uh, and the colors of the reds and the, and the yellows and the oranges. And to realize God is an artist unlike any other. Yeah. Uh, you really can't duplicate the work that he does. And yes, we savored the food. We uh, enjoyed New England seafood of every variety for those few days that we were there. And we didn't just eat. We really just took our time to savor the food that was there and uh, to savor the time that we had with one another uh, the, the couple that runs the bed and breakfast where we stay in, in, uh, in Rockport, uh, the husband is a, is, a, is a graduate of Westminster Seminary where I went to school, and uh, we, he went a few years after I did, young guy, and, but we know a lot of the same people, and it was a wonderful time of fellowship. And as we came back, uh, Margaret and I said, wow, we have just savored our time together, our time with others, and all of these things, and it was just great. And so I got back Friday and in the study thinking about the Lord's Day, and I thought that savoring really needs to continue in the preaching. Uh, one of the occupational hazards, I have our intern David Rios and his wife here, and so I'm always seeking to teach him as well. 
one of the occupational hazards in the ministry, it's a big one, is, is your service can be so dominant that it quenches the savoring. And that's, I'm afraid, is what had happened. And I made a fresh resolve, Lord, don't let that happen. Let me savor everything about reading your word, about singing your word, about ministering to people, um, about being a church planter, and, and, and above all, about preaching. And I thought, wow, Beatitudes. It's, it's not just kind of the prosaic, uh, the Beatitudes, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. And, but I've changed the title to Savoring, what I'm calling the being attitudes that we'll get to in just a moment. And so I hope that you won't mind my taking a little bit more time as we savor each one of these beatitudes. And David, I've already set the trajectory for you, so you'll have to kind of fit into it when it comes to the ones that you, that you open up. David, we're trying to give David um, a little bit of a break right now. He has more exams. Uh, but David, you'll be occupying the pulpit more. So uh, enjoy your time of a break. Okay, so we are savoring the Beatitudes. All preaching is savoring. It is savoring God. It's savoring the gospel. Let me ask you if you do. Do you just listen to sermons? Or do you savor God and savor the gospel and savor all of the honey that God gives you from his word? See, it's not just an occupational hazard for a minister, but it can be the same for the Lord's people as well. I love the word savor, to enjoy with appreciation, to relish, to delight in. And that's what we're doing as we begin savoring the being attitudes, Beatitudes, Matthew 5 and verses 1 through 12. Okay, so here we go. This is review, but um, hopefully it'll help you savor things. Why, why when you come to these things, and the whole Sermon on the Mount really, why, why call it the being attitudes. The Sermon on the Mount is not a new law. And it's very easy for preachers to use the Sermon on the Mount like a new law. You hit people over the head with all of their failings in light of the standard of perfection that Jesus gives in the Sermon. It's very easy to do that. But that's not the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not a new law, and particularly the Beatitudes are not a new law. They're not so much about what you do as what you are, right? So, so some examples. Hungering and thirsting. Hungering and thirsting comes because of what you, what you are. You are hungry, you, you are thirsty, and therefore you eat and, and you drink. Pure in heart. Well, in the nature of your case, you can't do anything to be pure in heart. Pure in heart is a desire that comes from within. It's what you are. You desire to be pure in heart. Salt and light, you don't do anything to make salt or light. You either are or are not salt and light. And then Jesus will even go on and summarize all this in his own way by saying you're either a good tree or a diseased tree. A good tree brings forth good fruit, and a diseased tree brings forth bad fruit or evil fruit. So, so the, the Beatitudes in particular are not so much about what you do, but about what you are. That's the significance of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has preached on this, this 
thing called the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God that has come because the king has come. Jesus is the king. And, and while there's crowds that listen to him, there's disciples who are following him. They're, they're captivated by uh, this person and, and this message. And these are the ones who are gathered around the Lord Jesus as he speaks. What is it to be a disciple, a real follower of Christ? Well, you're one in whom the new birth has been at work. God has, has made you a new creature in Christ. Or born again also can mean born from above. Heaven, heaven comes down and glory fills your soul. And that's why it's called the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's heaven itself that is within you. And it's not just one person. It's a whole body of people. In fact, it will be bodies of peoples. And there is a king. And that king is the Lord Jesus, okay? So, so all of that is in back of this, not so much being, well, not what you do, but what you are. And that makes you, and I want to be very careful how I use this phrase. If, if you're a disciple of Christ, the new birth has, has, has refashioning you, it makes you otherworldly. Not otherworldly, like you walk around as if you're in a pot-induced trance. I don't mean that. But otherworldly in that you focus on the world to come, on the perfection of this thing called the kingdom of heaven, or this thing that right now has entered into the world in which Jesus is king, and you're possessed of that. So the Sermon on the Mount is the lifestyle of the kingdom, or as we want to call it here, a Christian counterculture. So when the, when the New Testament writers speak of us, they speak of, of Christians as strangers and pilgrims in the earth, or exiles and pilgrims in the earth. What does that mean? Well, if you're an exile, you come from your home country, and you're in a foreign country. If you're a pilgrim, you're going to your home country, and if you're a genuine Christian, you're both. You're born from heaven, you're in the earth for a time, but you're, you're headed for heaven. Your heart is in heaven before you get there, and that heart drives you, okay? So, so all of that is in view of the kingdom of heaven and being a disciple of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as in Christ, heaven intersected with earth, that's what happens when you're born again. Heaven comes into you, and even as Christ intersected the earth, so do you. And that's why you're called light, and you're called salt, and so on and so forth. So, so again, we're savoring these things. Um, when, when Margaret and I drive, we're good in the morning, but I find in the afternoon you begin to get kind of drowsy, and so we'll, we'll put on music, and I guess we date ourselves, but we put on old movie themes. And uh, one of them that we have is the theme to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which I don't know, came out in the 1980s, I guess it was. Uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind is when you supposedly meet with the aliens or in these flying saucers. And it really was quite a, at least for that time, quite a, quite a technological uh, tour de force. But, but as I was thinking about this, it's very interesting how that movie sort of apes what happens in the Christian life, and I think they intended it that way. 
Uh, you'll notice how uh, contact with aliens, quote-unquote, uh, can become kind of like a religious experience they'll claim Christians have. But here's the parallels. In, in that movie, Richard Dreyfuss, there, who was the main character, um, there's something put in him by this, by the foreign, by by the alien powers. He, at one point, he's playing with his mashed potatoes, and he forms this mountain, which is something he is impelled to go to somewhere in the obscure portion of the West. But he, there's this thing in him, and he can't kick it. He can't kick this desire to be in this place. Well, it's the same thing with a Christian. You, you can't kick this desire to be with your Savior, to be in heaven, to be in glory. And, and I think one of the pernicious parts of that movie is that his tie with others who had that same kind of experience overrode even his commitment to his biological family. Um, but, but the truth in that is as a Christian, you do grow to love it doesn't mean you don't love your, your husband and your wife and your son and your daughter, but you love Christ the most. You love the kingdom of God the most, and there's that desire. And more than anything else, uh, he wasn't satisfied, nor were the others wrought upon by the aliens. They weren't satisfied until they not only saw uh, this, this entity, uh, this thing from another world, but they had to be in it. They had to be taken up in it. And it's the same thing with a Christian. You're not satisfied unless you're with your Savior, and you want to be with him, and you want to be with him in glory, okay? So, so that's close encounters of the best kind, and, and, that's, and that's all in back of um, that this, this whole matter of the being attitudes, especially when it says yours is the kingdom of heaven, which is the bracket, incidentally, the bracket of the, of the, of the uh, beatitudes of the blessing that comes. Anyway, and we'll be here all day if we just stay there. Okay, bless. When it says, blessed are the, whatever they are. Blessed, don't use the word happy here, although it will come up a little bit later in a different way. Um, but, but blessing, happiness is dependent upon your circumstances. Blessedness is the smile of God on you, the smile of God's favor on you. Uh, when you bless God, you smile on God, you praise God, you, you lift up God, you honor God. And when God blesses his people, he honors them. He and he smiles on them and he gives them he gives them his outpouring of grace and kindness. Okay, so so that's the meaning of, of blessed. And let me ask you folks, whose smile do you live for? Boy, this this will grate at you at points. God or gold? Uh, what, do I think more of the smile of my IRA, or do I think more of the smile of the God of heaven? Okay, uh, or, or is it heaven or earth? You look more for the favor horizontally, this side of heaven of earth, or do you desire the favor of heaven and heaven's God? And, and in blessed, Jesus wants you to be thinking of the smile of God on, on your life. Now, of the eight Beatitudes, the one on persecution is a little bit longer, but still eight of them. Um, number one, this is all review, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, blessed are those who realize by nature they have absolutely nothing. 
They are bankrupt. They're, they're not just needy, but without, without God, you can do nothing at all. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to your cross I cling. And, and, and along with that, and this is where poor in the Old Testament, which often had financial connotations, kind of merges into poor here. You're, you're deprived. You are oppressed. You are under the thumb of the world and the flesh and the devil. And as a result, you have nothing by nature, a child of wrath, even as the rest. But God, who is rich in mercy, blesses us and makes us alive in Christ. They have the kingdom of heaven. So blessed are the poor in spirit who realize their poverty. And like, like the, 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 the publican, they say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And God blesses with his riches. So it's a beautiful thing. And they're given, and they're given the, the kingdom of heaven, as one of our members here has written in his Bible. Uh, the poor in spirit means who has the kingdom of heaven, they possess nothing, but they have access to everything. In yourself, nothing, naked, but in Christ, you have, you have access to all that you need. Wow. That, and folks, now do you see why we're jumping to the end of the sermon? The people who heard Jesus were astounded. This is not... This is not like mere teaching you're going to get at a religious book at Barnes & Noble. This is God who, who opens up heaven to you through this. Okay, so, so that's just the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and these beatitudes, these being attitudes, are gold and chain. They're connected. And, and being poor in spirit leads inevitably to what you read in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's why if you say happy are the sad, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit. It, it doesn't even make sense. But blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's think of the mourning for a moment. Our culture is obsessed with the cultural anesthetic called humor. Going into work, you're going to face a difficult day, the way, to, the way to meditate and occupy your mind, listen to Comedy Central, and you'll hear the best comedians, stand-up comedians, and that will help make your day. And then you can tune it in again when you get done work and you've been battered and bruised, and you're kind of mourning over your work situation. Just, just turn on some comedy. That's a cultural anesthetic. It makes you feel a little bit better for a while. But it is a cultural obsession. And how interesting, if you, if you read, in, in, and you don't have to turn there, but Luke 6 uh, and verse 25, which is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, um, Luke says, after, almost like a P.S. to the blessed are those who mourn. He says, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall weep. When you laugh, when you ought to be weeping, 
That's pretty dangerous. We'll explain what I mean in just a moment. Or in James 4 and verse 9, be wretched and weep and mourn. Let your laughter be turned, let your, let your joy be turned to grief. James 4 and verse 9. Now, does that mean there's no place for humor? And there are Christians who, if you laugh, they really wonder if you're converted. And, and that's, not, that's not what we're getting at here. Let, 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 me, give you the, let me give you the difference, okay? Um, it's, it's been a rough day. It, it's, been, it's been a difficult day, and you're uptight. And uh, you're, you just, you've got to unwind. You can bend a bow so much before it cracks. And uh, on YouTube, you happen to get a, a selection of the one, one-liners of Rodney Dangerfield, who was a late comedian, uh, who was a master of one-liners, who never got any respect. And, and you have to laugh. You just have to laugh at these one-liners that kind of poke fun at the, uh, at, at the, at the ironies of our culture and society. And you laugh and you unwind. There's nothing wrong in that, folks. You have to do that something. You've got to have a good laugh. I don't know if that's what it means when it says he who sits in the heavens laughs, but God himself laughs certainly at the ironies of life. Now, you go to the doctor, and the doctor... Um, has looked at a battery of tests and he says to you, I've got some really bad news for you. I hate to put it like this. But you have a very aggressive cancer that's ravaging your whole body. And you look at the doctor and you smile and you say, give me some laughing gas, doc. That's not a time for laughing gas. That's the time to get serious about whatever treatment the doctor prescribes for you. Now, do you see the difference? Okay, in one case, good laughter to kind of break up the tension is a good thing. In other cases, when you're meant to mourn, laughter is an utter impertinence. Laughter is utterly, utterly out of place. And this kind of mourning, Jesus says, laughter, at least at this point, is, is out of place. And remember, we're not good at this, folks. We're in an amuse, don't think culture, an amusement culture where the best thing you can do after you get a little bit of bad news is have a good laugh. What is it to be those who mourn? I don't know any other way to put it. It'll come up in, in other contexts. It's to be real about this world. It's to get over the cultural anesthetic that makes you feel like everything is great when it really isn't. Now, when we think of blessed are those who mourn, the first thing you think about, inevitably, you lose a child, you lose a spouse, you lose a parent. And, and you know that mourning is the depth of the feeling of loss. What is death? The wages of sin is death. Not, not necessarily the particular sin of that individual who has died. But we're born into a fallen world in which literally from the point of conception you begin to die. And 
Blessed are those who mourn is one of God's great megaphones telling us this world is abnormal. And when you get real, you will know something of what mourning is. God, incidentally, has two megaphones with which he shouts at the world. They're both connected with the grave. One megaphone is the grave opened to put in the casket of a loved one. And you don't take laughing gas for that. That's God's megaphone saying the wages of sin, of what our first parents did, is death. Don't ever forget it. Every death brings you back to Genesis 3 and the Lord saying, and the day you eat, you're going to die. But here's the other megaphone. It's a grave that's opened up on what we know of as the first Easter Sunday. And when the Lord Jesus rises, has risen from the dead, and that is God's great statement that man's great enemy of death has been conquered. See, God has two great megaphones in life. But anyway, okay, so, so but, but we're dealing with loss. Mourning is, is loss, and the death of a loved one is the depth of loss. But all loss brings mourning. You think of yourself as a fallen person, my loss of innocence because of sin. And you mourn because of your loss of innocence or your loss of righteousness. I don't, I, I don't by nature hunger and thirst after righteousness when I should. And, and you mourn over that. Your loss of honor. God, God has made all people honorable by nature, is made in God's image. And my, how we disgrace ourselves. And there's that loss of honor we're meant to have. And, and quite frankly, even the loss of life that comes gradually. We tease about the graying hair or about the wrinkles on the face. Uh, or about the weight that begins to shift in areas you wish it didn't shift to. And you're more tired. And God reminds you every day, one day death. And you mourn because of loss. But go beyond that, brothers and sisters. Those who mourn go beyond themselves and they get ruthlessly honest about the world in which they live. It's not exactly the same word, but it's, it's a synonym. You know where mourning began? It certainly began with, with Adam and Eve in the fall, but, but the great statement of mourning speaks of God's mourning. God made the world, and the world is a fallen world. And God had not restrained man, but man was just let go to do what he wanted. And every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was shown to be only evil continually. And it made God mourn, it grieved God that he made man. 
As God looked out upon this world that he'd made and man that he'd made, man who of his own, and there's where free will was active, man of his own free will had sinned. He made a mess of himself and the world, and that made God mourn. And it's probably for this reason that, that this is the second of the being attitudes. It, it grows out of the general one, poverty of spirit. The specific one is to mourn over a fallen world. And that's given in so many ways in the scriptures. Out of the depths I cry to you, O oh Lord, hear my voice. Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? Certainly I could not. Do you say that because of your sin? I mourn because of my iniquities before God. And then as you look out at the world, Psalm 119, the psalmist says, rivers of water run down from my eyes because I'm reading the same headlines you do every day because people do not keep your law. Ezekiel is to pronounce a judgment upon those who are part of a very, very wicked land of, of Judah. And yet at one point, he's to mark, he's to put a sign on those who mourn over the abominations of that land. Isn't that interesting? Where judgment is to come to those who curry and who, who invite iniquity, those those who are brokenhearted over it and mourn, they're blessed. They're given a particular seal according to what the Lord says through Ezekiel. Paul, looking at the Corinthian church, saints, those marked out as holy, nevertheless they tolerated, as I'm sorry to say churches are doing in our own day, they tolerated all forms of sexual iniquity in the churches and Paul said, you boast. Andy Stanley boasts that they can have a conference in which they can show their liberation and having men who are married to men speak. Paul would say to him, Pastor Stanley, you should rather mourn because of the toleration of those things that even the Gentiles don't tolerate. And, and, and Paul in Romans 7, as he, as he looks at himself, does, do you say this? The good things I want to do, I find myself not doing them. The things I know I shouldn't do, I find myself doing them. A wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That, that, that's what it is. That's some of the biblical range, and there's much more of it, of mourning. And in Matthew you have this, when Jesus pronounces woes, in Matthew, Matthew chapter 23, Jesus pronounces his woes against the scribes and the Pharisees and the hypocrites, whitewashed tombs. They, 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 they look outwardly like they're so religious, and yet inside they fester and they stink because they're just dead man's bones. And that woe that Jesus pronounces, a judgment, is the opposite side of the coin of the mourning that Jesus has. But, but as you come to the end of Matthew chapter 23 and, and verses 27 through 29, this, this Jesus 
This Jesus who pronounces these words of judgment, listen, listen to what is said of him. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. But that's not a cold Jesus. Luke says, as he beheld the city, he wept. And the language is he wailed. He wept profusely. He lamented. He sobbed. He mourned over this wicked, wicked city. Now, that's where I want to bring this part. I know that there's comfort, but let's just take a moment here. This comes up in prayer meetings. It comes up in our discussions. And I appreciate this as a pastor. What pastor do I do when I see this kind of wickedness in our culture? It makes me angry. And yes, it does me too. When you see the flaunting of human rebellion in the face of God, you think of the old Negro, quote-unquote, spiritual young man, your arms are too short to box with God. Or you see warfare that you'd wish would stop, and the harming of innocent civilians that you wish would stop. And your natural tendency is to get angry or, or to see blessings that we have enjoyed as a nation and to see those things disregarded and, and stomped upon. And it's easy to get angry with those things. I want to challenge you as I challenge myself. Brothers and sisters, like Jesus, we need to turn from anger to weeping. The wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. God does not need my wrath to accomplish his purposes. God needs my weeping to reflect to the world the heart of a God who grieves, right? So, so there's, there's the challenge when it comes to mourning. Uh, let, your, let your mourning and the anger turn from wrath to grief and to tears, okay? Now, you don't want to leave without the comfort last part of verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And this, brothers and sisters, listen, this is part of the glory of the gospel. And you, you can't replace it. You know, there's kind of a, I've talked about a cultural, a cultural tranquilizer. There's kind of a cultural Prozac in a way. There's cultural antidepressants to make you feel better. In this fallen world, when you begin to see something of its fallenness, uh, you'll keep these tranquilizers. God doesn't want to keep us in our fallenness. In fact, for that matter, God wants us to rise above by his grace our mourning, even though this side of glory, we're always going to experience it. Let, let, me, let me put it a little bit theologically for you, okay? We talk about general revelation. 
the, the foliage, the beauty of God and his handiwork, the clouds that he puts into the sky and how they, they show his power. And you can, you can derive a lot of lessons uh, about God's care. The Lord consider the, consider the birds. They don't, they don't provide for themselves, but the Lord provides for them. He uses human instruments in many cases to do it, but he provides for them. He provides for the, provides for the grass to make it grow. He provides for the birds. And, and, his, and God's care in general, is demonstrated there. His wisdom is demonstrated just in the way he's made. He's made things. That's why I always tell people, I, I don't have enough faith to be a, a macroevolutionist <laughs> because of the wonder of the way God made things. And so, so there is this general revelation in which God shows himself. But if you stay there as one who mourns ultimately because you are fallen and in a fallen world, and you stay only in general revelation, only in the created order, you're living on palliative care. What's palliative care? Palliative care is you're deathly ill. You're going to die of cancer or whatever it is. And you are given care that makes you feel better. And I'm not disparaging that at all. I've worked with hospice care workers, palliative care workers, and I thank God for their skills as they deal with people who are ravaged with pain. But, but if there's a way of being delivered from your spiritual cancer and you only live on palliative care, isn't the creation beautiful? See how God provides for the birds. Isn't God's delicacy in the way he forms the... Isn't that, isn't that a beautiful thing? And I'll kind of rest in that, okay? That's not going to get you anywhere. Make you feel better for a while. But it doesn't heal you. It doesn't, it doesn't help you really rise above the morning. Special revelation. God gives promises in his word. He gives you those stones that you stand on in the swift currents of this life, and those promises in that word all are woven together in this person called Jesus, who is the gospel incarnate. He's the gospel in flesh. And he says to you, as the one who in stark reality says, I'm going to die. I mourn because I'm part of a fallen world that's dying and I'm dying too. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. And I'll give you everlasting life. And I'm not just going to talk about it. I'm going to prove it. I'll take the punishment that you deserve on the cross. And I'll conquer death. So that when you believe in me, all that I possess it becomes yours. That's not general revelation. You, you wouldn't get that out of a tree. But you get it out of the Word of God. And, and there's where the promise comes, where God says to you, I don't want you to stay in your mourning state. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And how does that come? Well, sometimes it comes this side of heaven. You have the fresh, cool breezes of God coming with his reviving work. You're made to rejoice in the Lord, even though you're downcast. Now, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, why, why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Why are you disquieted? Why are you 
morning within you. Hope in God, for you'll yet praise him, the help of your countenance and your God. Those are the promises that pull you through. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who go forth sowing precious seed with tears, not, not the tears of labor, but the tears of, of being in a fallen world, they shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing their sheaves with them. And, and so God has his ways of, of taking the sorrows of this life and bringing fresh, reviving, cool breezes of his grace so that you're comforted. You're comforted. And we all thank God we experience that. But it's still a world in which there's mourning and which is death. And that's by design, so you don't trust in this life. Because one day, after Jesus returns, and we pray for that, it's not going to be fresh breezes, folks. It's going to be a permanent, high-pressure system of the beauty of a new heavens and the new earth. And, and it's in that context, John hears from Jesus that one day he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death, there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more crying, and there'll be no more mourning, for the former things will have passed away. See how wonderful the gospel is? And, there, and there's, no, there's no replacement for it in anything else. So, so Jesus, how wonderful. We go from that general poverty of spirit, uh, possessing nothing and yet access to everything, and the golden chain, it leads to mourning. But blessed are those who mourn in Christ. You come to him, and they shall be comforted. So let's wrap it all up in, in this way. Remember, it's Christian counterculture, folks. The Bible doesn't ape our culture. The Bible transforms our culture, beginning with you. The Christian counterculture, the lifestyle of the kingdom. Go from anger, brothers. There's a legitimate anger. I get that. But don't stay there. Go from anger to mourning, from wrath to sorrow, and from condemnation to lamentation. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. You know what that means? Instead of you and I anguishing, Lord, are you angry with me because I'm angry with all these things and stewing in my anger? Let the Lord transform your meanness into mourning. And the Lord says, I smile on that. When that's done by grace, I smile on that. And what's my promise? Not only will you be comforted, but Luke, who on the one hand has said, the gospel writer Luke, who said, you know, let your laughter be turned to mourning. He says later, those of you who mourn, you're going to laugh. You will laugh. There, there will be, you'll be able to join in God's laughter 
as he gets his victory over all things. But go from condemnation to lamentation. You'll be under the smile of God, and there will be the promise of comfort and of laughter. Why? Because yours is the kingdom of heaven. And you have a king, and his name is Jesus. And he says, in this beatitude, that's exactly what's going to happen. Blessed are you who mourn. You will be comforted. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the stark, wonderful reality of looking at your world through your word. And our Lord, we confess our sins. We confess, we get angry with people violating what they are as made in your image. Uh, people, people rebelling against their own sexuality. Uh, we confess our God that we are brokenhearted with the hatred of other people. Uh, we confess that we are brokenhearted, our God, uh, because of the ways in which your law is trounced, rivers of water run down from our eyes because people do not keep your law. But Lord, we pray that you'd replace our rivers of anger with our rivers of tears. We pray, our Lord, that you will take, again, take our meanness, our own personal wrath, and turn it into mourning, turn our spirit of condemnation into real lamentation. So, our Lord, you smile on us as being real in the world, but real as we also look to your promises that the Lord Jesus Christ will get his victories even in the midst of a fallen world and even in our midst as fallen people. Lord, give us, we pray, a grace look at everything through the one who is filled with truth and grace, Jesus, in whom we pray and confirm that we desire to be heard as we say together, Amen. Amen. Amen.